What does hard coffee, a generational brand and beer, all have in common? These are all things that Pabst Blue Ribbon not only does, but does extremely well. Pabst Blue Ribbon has been around longer than sliced bread, like actually. Founded in 1844, PBR is one of the most iconic brands in the world, and a lot of that is thanks to our guest on today's episode. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Trendsetters podcast. So far in this Trendsetter CMO series, we've had some amazing guests like Melanie Hewitt of Sermon Simmons or Mark Metry of Humans 2.0. And today we welcome on someone who has had a huge impact on American culture. Matt Brune is the president and GM of Paps Blue Ribbon. And on today's episode of the Trendsetters podcast, our founder sits down with Matt to discuss all things PBR branding and coffee. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share this episode if it brought you any value at all. Thanks for listening. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another Trendsetters CMO podcast series. Today, I'm joined by the president and chief marketing officer as well um, of a little company that you may have heard of, Paps Blue Ribbon. Um, And they own a myriad of brands, particularly in the alcohol space. And so today, we're going to be diving into what the future of alcohol looks like from both a marketing perspective, as well as business, innovation, so on. So it's an honor to have you on. Uh, I am curious to hear a little bit about your backstory, um, as well as how you've kind of transitioned from that role of CMO into president as well. Yeah, uh, yeah so I've been in alcohol beverages for 15 years plus. I started um, my career out of school in packaged goods. I worked at tobacco company, then I worked for Kellogg's uh, for a few years. Um, worked in Asia for a couple of years and then moved to New York City with Diageo, which owns Johnny Walker and Smirnoff. And most recently, a few years ago, moved to Paps uh, Beverage Company based in LA. And yeah, I'm the general manager and president. We actually just last week um, put a CMO in the business. So oh, really? Okay. Until then, I was, yeah, I was double hatting for, I don't know, a year and a bit, but recently... Um, we just promoted our SVP of marketing to CMO, but uh, it's only two weeks old. So. Got it, got it, got it. That yeah. makes sense. My, my intel is not that fresh. I apologize. That's all good. <laughs> I didn't update LinkedIn. Yeah, cool. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, whatever's on LinkedIn, that's accurate, 100%. Everything, there you go. That's everything that's I say 100%. It's the truth, yeah. man. <laughs> so, so something I am curious to hear from you, uh, something we've seen really over the past, you've probably seen this longer, but recent years, at least from a consumer perspective, is uh, the sparkling beverage craze. Uh, similarly, this, uh, this notion that beer sales have taken a little bit of a hit some, sometimes here and there, depending on who you're looking at, uh, and some claiming that millennials may have killed beer, and there's some other things we can get into later. But for you, 
What does the future of the industry look like from an innovation standpoint and, and from, from a marketing perspective? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, um, you only have to look at history to, to realize that what's happening right now with sparkling seltzers and alcohol seltzers isn't particularly new. It's new in, new in concept, but not new in behavioral change. So if you go back to the 70s, I think maybe it was, when light beer was invented in the US, I mean... Up until then, no one drank anything but regular beer, and then boom, along came light beer, and suddenly light beer is you know, 10x the size of regular beer. And then craft beer emerges in the thousands, that completely changes the industry, and then you know we're entering another period where you know things are changing again with this kind of stronger cell, the seltzer space emerging. And look, it's against a, a long, a long trend, a, a kind of pretty slow cultural trend of you know, relatively better for me, slightly healthier stuff, you know, still with alcohol, still with an enhanced experience, but you know, slightly less calories or a cleaner taste. So that, that's what's going on there. I think moving forward, there'll just be more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what we're seeing is um, a big experimental stage in terms of how people want to consume drinks. I mean, go go into the non-alcoholic category, into, into you know, soft drinks, You've seen massive explosion of innovation beyond classic soft drinks. You've now got brewed drinks, kombuchas. Oh yeah. You know, we're all we're all drinking something pretty random. So, in alcohol beverages, the same has been true. You got it from two fronts. You've got it in spirits, where people are experimenting with new mixes and new cocktails. You've got it in beer, where people want different flavor experiences. And what you've got is less systematic and sociological pressure for next generational consumers to conform to previous generation behavioural patterns. Mm-hmm. So the traditional beer was benefited by a kind of passed down grandfathered experience. It was a right passage. It was, a, it was critical consumer behaviour that as a young man, you cut your teeth on drinking a regular bird. Um, and today, that just doesn't exist. It's like, mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you do follow the traditions of the past, you're kind of ostracised versus today's experimentation, be yourself, individualism, um, and that's just going to continue to flow into a litany of kind of out there innovation. I mean, to the point where we launched a hard coffee this year, uh, Pastoral Ruben hard coffee, and the thing's going ballistic. And, um, you know, non alcoholic prepackaged coffee is, you know, tens of millions of cases, you know, 40, 50, 60 million cases. We made an alcoholic version of basically Starbucks Frappuccino, and yeah. people love it because people are just after really cool new inexperiences. So my prediction is, you know, it continues. We'll see. I think, though, with the COVID experience, what we will see is um, an increased need for trusted and respected brands. Um, and we'll have a little bit more um, fear of experimenting in new brands. We'll want exper- safe experimentation is kind of, a, as I would phrase it, right, which is, I want to experience the new hard green tea or seltzer watermelon, but I want it from a brand that if I buy a 12-pack at the grocery store that I'm not going to get home and hate because I'm going to the shops less often because I'm a bit concerned about COVID. So when I do shop once a week, I want to make sure what I buy isn't, isn't going to suck. Whereas pre-COVID, you could walk into a convenience store, grab one can to try it, love it, hate it. What have you wasted? Two bucks fifty? 
Now, yes. because you're shopping more groceries, taking a 12-pack home, 15 bucks, well, if that sucks, I'd block 15 bucks. So I think there's going to be some... Uh, we're already seeing it in the data, actually, a big flee to safer brands and trusted brands. But I'm still thinking those safe, safe and trusted brands need to experiment with new beverages um, because I don't think consumers are just going to return back to exclusively traditional choices. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and you mentioned something in there cons- about consumer behaviors, how those can continue to evolve and change with some of those new innovations. Um, you know, alcohol and, and, and how you kind of brand, you know, beverages and brands with, within that, that realm, it's all about that experience, those social settings, showing it. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the data that we've seen when it comes to a little bit of millennial, but primarily Gen Z is kind of their fascination with cannabis. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, a question I have for you is, is how do you see cannabis uh, potentially affecting indirectly what happens with alcohol yeah. sales? Like maybe yeah, on a look, Friday night. Look, it's a really good, really good question, right? Because you take something that's been illicit and illegal for generations and, you know, you legalize it in part, I should say, it's legalized in part because it's some state restrict straight, you know, some states have opened up but federally it's still a, it's still a banned substance. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a bit murky right now in terms of where it's at. That being said, you know, when you talk about enhancing experiences, this is what we think about. You know, you can enhance your experiences through the use of alcohol or THC where it's legal. Um, so there is some crossover in the experience. The mm-hmm. benefits are vastly different. You know, alcohol has a different role in your life. It's more socially acceptable. It's multi-generational. It doesn't feel as risky. So it has its own special place. But THC and, and CBD now as well, will find its own occasion, its own needs. And, you know, as a federally regulated alcohol company, we obviously can't legally participate on a federal level in, in, in cannabis at, the, at this point. But that being said, as soon as it has a change in legislation, I mean, we'll, we'll look at it. I mean, we'll, we've looked at it. We'll continue to look at it when it's regulated. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have a go, you know, have a go and we'll get into it. Um, but we'll try and make sure the products we create have an occasion, you know, that, that's different from alcoholic beverages, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to get back to an earlier point that you yeah. talked about, the, the social aspects of alcoholic beverages. Unlike most packaged goods, whether it's cereal or toothpaste or any of those things, alcohol is the one lifestyle um, and fashion-orientated category. That's why I really have enjoyed being in it for so long because it's, con- it's consumable fashion, right? It is badge-worthy identity-defining product. So you stand at a party and you hold a particular brand of alcohol, it, it kind of says something, just like your T-shirt label says something about you as well, which is really unique when it comes to packaged goods because um, no one's judging you on the use of the Kleenex brand or the, the toilet paper brand you're using. Although maybe now CP is something pretty important in the world. But yeah. <laughs> um, it, it is a very unique category where it kind of, it transcends packaged goods and more sits in the fashion world. So to be good as a alcohol brand, you've got to think fashion and execute like packaged goods. It's a really unique balance. Um, that's what that's what I think. I think to your, to your point about cannabis, yeah. I mean, I think it's cool, and I think when it gets regulated, you know, we're going to be all in on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is uh, that's an exciting point for. Uh 
probably 98% of our audience. Uh, so I think they're thrilled to hear that. Now, when it comes to, you know, if I'm Geico, right, and I'm an insurance company, you know, a lot of my consumers are not going to be those under the age of, of 21, right? Uh, you know, if I'm some of these other brands, but I can still advertise to them. I can still build a brand reputation to then once sure. they age up, get into it. How do you combat some of that compliance that exists? And how do you, you know, particularly advertise or promote or, or still be able to get touch points with younger audiences, despite the fact that legally, at least, they might not be able to actually consume the products? Yeah, I mean, I don't... I mean, given the size of our business, um, there's really not no need to attempt to skate close to the, the, the boundaries. Mm-hmm. I mean, 21 plus American population is huge. The volume, the volume attainable in the category is massive. Profitability strong. There is no real attraction of attempting to, um, you know, build your brand, you know, below the age of 21. The thing is, you know, as you kind of build credibility with 21, 22, 23, 24, and you become a cool brand amongst that group, it tends to transcend anyway into the people who turn 21 because as you fall into the age of legal drinking, you kind of see and identify with those who already are drinking and if they are drinking certain products, then you'll aspire for that. So um, we don't even have any consideration or, or thinking about sub-21. We just try and win. Yeah, that's 21 to 24 year old demo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, um, I want to highlight a few brands that, that have done things interesting when it comes to reaching that, that what I would call con- sure. consider college age demographic. So, natural light. Um, you know, some of the things that, that they've done, um, I know they released, what was it's the, the lemonade, the, the lemonade one, yeah, the sparkling one. lemonade. Yeah, all those different variations, right, to reach that college demographic and then obviously selling at like 14 15 bucks for a 30 rack in yeah. Kansas, right? So you see that and how that connects with those younger younger audiences. But then a lot of those you, you, you would assume might age out of that where they go, well, that was what I drank in college. I'm going to drink that now. And, yeah. and I remember personally, uh, you know, when I was in college, I would come home, I would go buy my traditional college beer, you know, over the summer, bring it back home. And my dad would be like, if I ever see that in the fridge again, you're not coming back in this house. Like, cause you know, it's so kind of that generation disparity, but also the age disparity too. How do you think that affects things? And, and do you take that into approach when you're thinking about marketing to younger demographics that maybe this doesn't stay throughout? Like maybe we don't yeah. age with them. Yeah, I think, I think, when when you when you exclusively focus on a period of someone's life that is particularly unique, and college in the U.S. is a particular weird trend when you disassociate with the family and go somewhere else to live, it's pretty yes. unique. And you do it for multiple years, and then you leave that lifestyle behind. When you when you fixate on that, which is a unique and non-repeatable uh, life experience, you you are going to cause yourself significant brand problem yes um being a frat boy brand and a college brand is going to translate into not being a brand for a 25 year old with a job right so that's certainly something that i have not advocated for pbr and something that we've kind of moved away from i would say here's what i would say is you know you can do short-term tactics you can launch different flavors and you can drop the price you can do all that good stuff if you want to do it 
But what makes a great brand is brand building. And the word building is more important than brand in that statement, right? Um, just go listen to Professor Galloway or anyone, uh, Mark Ritson, any of these kind of marketing professors, and building is the word. Because it's a multiple years of consistent action that create a brand. And it's not the one-off strawberry lemonade from a crap brand aimed at college kids, right? No disrespect to Natty, right? I think some of the stuff they do is pretty cool. So no, de- no downside to them. But with Pass Blue Ribbon, in particular, we've chosen to support communities and cultures that represent our ethos. Artistic communities have supported for decades. We continue to do it through grassroots, grassroots marketing, um, music, live music, ongoingly supporting venues, acts. Um, so we're part of enduring contemporary and progressive culture um, versus, you know, one-off, um, product or something aimed at a particular life stage. And yeah, we'll, we'll then have sprinkled in there a bunch of really cool, interesting products, but they're there because that's what consumers want in their progressive lifestyles. They don't want just one regular beer, they want multiple experiences. But I think the important thing in any brand, if you're considering it, is think building. And this is really difficult when the average tenure of a brand manager is about 26 months, right? Yeah. So what you've got to do if you, if you, if you have a long-term vision, with a really clear, multi, you know, a, a really principled, you know, people talk about brand purpose and brand roles, and we all have those, but to have some sort of enduring sense of what you stand for and what value you're going to create over many years, and then you can play tactics inside that long-term vision, um, that's what's really important. And then you've got to keep the integrity of that vision alive, and that's got to be at the most senior levels of the organisation. You are going to flip and turn brand managers, but your CMO, your GM, whatever, whoever's at the sort of top of the business needs to be guardrail that long-term vision. Otherwise, it'll get pulled apart by the, the nature of the classic brand manager turnover. Yeah, yeah. So it's almost like those those tactics sometimes, you know, from, from your perspective, are seen as just tactics. They're actually not a part of maybe a larger cohesive strategy. And so if you actually have... Sometimes, I... I think some of these brands that you know that have these one-off success don't endure. Yeah. Right. I mean, they have a one-hit wonder and then they're done. Right. I mean, we're talking about Absolute Ribbon is 175 years old, and I'd like it to be around for another 175. So um, you've got to think. You've got to think long term, and inside that long term thinking, you've got to be prepared to be tactical and adaptive as well. But if you're only tactical and adaptive and not strategic then you'll have one good year and followed by two bad years and another good year in the future. So it's that, it's that balance of being highly visionary and strategic, but inside that fed place some tactics that's necessary. Yeah, I can't echo that sentiment enough. I think from our perspective in Gen Z, we, we see when brands approach reaching this generation, it's very tactical, which I mean, it's, it's a one-off, it, it makes sense. And so having a more cohesive strategy that we can build into that form. Yeah, it's always, it's always, look, I'm not recruiting the next generation and then you go, well, you haven't been for five years, what makes you going to do today, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, if you've lost, if for five or six years in a row, you've lost the penetration of 21 to 24 year old consumers, you've skipped an entire generation. So, um, you know, that's, that's what, what's important. It's about clear, consistent strategy in the face of the, the performance that comes in the immediate term. If, if it's all about short-term performance improvement, then you'll not build your brand, you'll try and just trade your brand. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, again, this is geared towards more of what I would call 
the college demo, but I think it's a good example that probably plays elsewhere. And I'm sure you have better insight on that than I would. Um, Barstool Sports, they partnered with, I think it was New Amsterdam. I could be, I could be wrong on the specific brand that it was to release what was called the Pink Whitney. It's a specific vodka that was promoted as a Barstool product um, in coordination with the vodka firm. Um, that launch, it was a wild success. It was selling out everywhere. I don't know if they've continued that or if they've kind of slowed it down. Um, you know, that's an example of a small kind of short-term brand collaboration. But I know we see brand collaborations in a lot of different industries. Alcohol, maybe a little bit, a little bit less outside of maybe sporting events and such. Is that something that you're actively thinking about, you know, brand collaborations? What can yeah. that look like? Yeah, I think collaborations are cool. I mean, um, but again, you've got to collaborate with someone that's consistent with your brand building philosophy. Every year we collaborate with um, our emerging artists in America to launch, you know, millions of cans, PBR art cans. We run an art competition every year where we have thousands of people trying to get their art on the can. And every year we launch an art can and we support the artistic community and we collaborate in that way. So if you're going to collaborate, you've got to know why you're doing it, who are you doing it with, and what value they're adding that, that makes the product or proposition you've created remarkable, right? Otherwise, it's just it's just for sake, the sake of collaboration. I mean, again, as an alcohol company, you're looking at the fashion world to determine, you know, what is working, what is not. So the, the fashion collaborations, whether it's, you know, Off-White and Nike with Virgil, they, in, they dramatically enhance the, the design, the, whatever it is, the, the aesthetics of the item they create. So that product is better because of that collaboration. It's not just a collaboration. It's a better outcome because these people got together. And as long as you continue to think my collaboration needs to create something better, then you, it's going to work. But if it's just a collaboration for the sake of sticking a logo on the side of a shoe or you know a logo on the side of a bottle, that's just not going to work because that's not yeah. ultimately... If you think about the consumer who's going to buy it, that has to represent value to them. And just thinking a name or a logo on the side of a bottle is not going to help you. It has to be uh, it has to be at its core a better proposition, a cooler idea, a better aesthetic, whatever it is. Yeah. So something I've always found interesting, I think that that kind of aligns with this, is that you know very luxury alcohol brands have um, coordinated you know the implementation of their brand in popular music artists. And initially, that was probably just implemented. Now it's like probably just a part of the the typical rhymes and such, uh, particularly in the, you know the rap industry, country a little bit as well. Is that you know when we think about the next generation and, and influencer marketing and music and where music plays in today's culture, uh, and Adora. yeah, <laughs> the next the next. Uh, the, the, the next CMO um, that's leading the TikTok charge, right? So um, when we think about social, social settings, music's always a big thing there. Is that something that, you know, as a non, what would you consider not like a luxury brand, like a Gucci, Versace, or like a, a, sure. a high-end alcohol, is that something you're ever thinking about how you can work yeah. in? Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. So obviously being in spirits for 12 years, the pay for play, the participation in kind of um, paid uh, product placement is, is high. You, you are looking to put your product in movies and, and film and stuff. Um, but I believe the best product placement is the organic product placement. It's when, you know, that is the product that is appropriate for that, that is already in that scene, right? I'll give you an example. So 
we for years have supported all the catering companies and all the roadies in LA with PBR. We, we've, we've always jacked in cases to help catering and you know, roadies and back of house dudes have a beer at the end of the shoot. And so because of that, we tend to fall in a heap of movies. I mean, you go look at Venom. Um, the first Venom film, um, yeah. you know, they're just crushing PBR cans. And that's not because we paid for it. That's because we've been there for a decade giving free beer to, 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 to catering companies and, and back of house dudes, right? Um, if we were in anything, like we were in Beach Bum the other day with Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Because we were part of that scene for fucking years, right? So I'm a believer of, you know, know your communities, know your cultural touch points, be a part of them organically and ongoingly. And when those cultures kind of pop in popular culture, you'll be part of that drive and it'll feel natural and authentic. People can smell when you're artificially sticking your logo or your product into an influence page or into a movie. Um, it just looks naff and it looks contrived. So we try not to do any of that sort of stuff. Not that we have the budgets for it, frankly, but um, even if we did, I wouldn't endorse it. I think, um, I think again, brand building, being there, building your brand, in that culture, it's going it's to help you, you know? Yeah, that's incredible insight. And so the final question I have for you is, you know, what do you think that the PVR brand is for consumers? And what's your approach to thinking about that? You know, because, you know, to me, you know, different brands in different arenas and different industries can all take on kind of a life of their own and become kind of their own thing. And um, I think we all have different perceptions and perspectives of what that is but i'm curious to hear you know from from very literally the top down like what does that look like for you when you think about that for consumers yeah so you know past blue ribbon brand for 150 years of its life was quintessentially americana um you know classic you know beer of low price, good quality kind. That's what it lived for 50 years. And then sadly, it aged out because it wasn't keeping up at the time. And then, you know, late 90s, it was pretty much dead. And then around 08, 09, when there was, just before the recession, actually, there was a kind of flip to consumers seeking alternative, more authentic choices and away from homogeneous, large-scale businesses. And then, you know, Occupy Wall Street and all this sort of stuff happened. 08, 09, recession hits. And then PBR becomes this brand of, you know, fuck you big corporate and yeah. um, I'm going to buy this kind of um, weird ass old school brand that's half the price and then we get labelled a hipster's brand because well the hipsters drive the movement yeah, yeah. but at its heart probably what this brand is is an independent voice and, and, and something that reflects the individual's person's desire to be themselves um, and we talk about forging your own path being your own person and not conforming to the stereotypical norms of everyone else um, and we like that positioning. We like being the small guy. We like being, we like the idea of being less rebellious these days. We're not like trying to put our finger up to the establishment like we were in 08, 09 when it was anti-establishment. We're just now like self-actualize, be yourself, don't, don't make everyone else's choices and identify with a brand that, that continues to support communities and cultures that are independent of, you know, in thought and action. So that's how I see the brand. Um, we see it. We see it very much as a brand that's progressive, open-minded, forward-thinking, but it's not. It's multi-generational as well. Yeah. Plus, a lot of our a lot of our marketing activity is certainly next-generational because they're driving trends and changes. We also bring in and include, you know, multi-generational because you could be a 55-year-old hippie 
who who went to Woodstock, maybe a bit old, maybe sixty. If you went yeah. to Woodstock, and you still you still identify as super individual and progressive and different. We're not aiming at some you know, 21, 22 only. We're aiming at in people with like the psychographics um, that identify as an individual, want to do their own thing, driving their own path, and that, that applies across the spectrum, right? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a there's a sense that you have to be, you know, young to be, you know, rebellious and against culture and and connected and progressive, but it's actually not true. And, and you know, oddly, the the boomer generation that that my generation will will talk talk bad on, they were the ones that pioneered like half the stuff that we now love and, and that is so great into our nostalgia. Sure. I bet still, I mean, still ten percent of those boomers are cool and doing cool shit. Oh yeah, and then you know. 60% of them are just cashed up and just taking all the money from everyone else. But, you know, there's still, no matter what age you are, there's still a, there's still a small amount of people within those generations that w- want to be themselves and want to stand out as different and do their own thing. And, and that's, that's who gets down with PBR. I mean, we, we've still got 75-year-old dudes that buy a case every week and they live in the Midwest and love us, right? Then we've got, like, uber-kill kids in New York or L.A. or Kansas City there's a few cool kids in Kansas City that's really down with us as well. So, um, you know, we're all for that, man. We're, like, inclusive and open and it's all cool. Yeah. We just don't want, you know, we don't want to be a brand that's boring, dull, traditional, stuck in its ways and, and, and kind of conforms to homogeneous big brand behavior. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible insight. And, and for those listening and also kind of watching right now, this is not this is not coming from just someone we pulled off the street. This is probably the the one who's going to know the brand best, right? And so, uh, you know, I think this is incredible insight. And I, I can also say everything you just said really speaks to the authenticity of the brand. And I think that shows in your messaging and a lot of your insight here in this discussion. And so, you know, we thank you guys for that. And uh, thank you for your time. Uh, this was an incredible well, episode. Appreciate it. A lot of great insights here. All right. Awesome. Thank Have you. a good day.